So we're we're glad that we're glad that you do it. And and uh, where is Tiger? There's Tiger right there. Tiger's walking around. He's uh, he's got a basket and cards. And if you did not, have you you know just raise your hand. He'll come to you, and uh, he'll pick up your cards. And also, if you have any questions, you write your cards down, and we'll try to answer as many of them as we possibly can in the time limit that we have. If you don't have a card, raise your hand. He'll bring you a card, okay? A little three by five card. So, all right, let's, let's do this. Let's go to the Lord in uh, prayer. Uh, okay. Oh, yeah, okay, thank you. All right, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Well, Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for uh, Dr. Reagan. We thank you, Father, for your word. But we thank you, most important, Father, for your whole plan for all humanity. And what we see going on in Israel, and we pray for the Jewish people, because, Lord, it, it was when they went to sleep, our opportunity as Gentiles came into being where that we then could come and accept you. But, Lord, the day is coming when you're going to turn back to them, and in the tribulation they'll realize how they need to come, how Jesus is the Messiah, and that, Lord, we're all, in your word tells us, Lord, that all Israel will be saved, is what you tell us, with what they got to go through in order to see that. So, Lord, we pray for them today. We pray for every person that's here, and we pray, Father, that the Holy Spirit would be our teacher as we ask all these things in the mighty name of Jesus and for his sake. Amen. Well, I will go ahead and, and uh, try to stump uh, Dr. Reagan if we can. And so anyway, with the questions. If you got one, just we'll continue, even though people come in late, whatever. The, the first question deals, uh, this deals in the millennium, and it, it's, it's this. Explain the purpose that, uh, you know, there's going to be, there's not going to be a temple in heaven, but in the millennium, there's going to be a temple. So explain the purpose of the temple and also animal sacrifices at that time. Okay. Well, first of all, let me say I appreciate you coming early this morning to, for this question and answer period. When I hold prophecy conferences, my favorite part is the question and answer period. I never cease to be amazed at some of the questions I get. I think the wildest question I ever received was from a teenager who asked, is going to hell like being sucked into a black hole in space? <laughs> I do not claim to have the answer to all questions. There's many questions about Bible prophecy that nobody knows the answer to. For example, we know there's going to be a battle of Gog and Magog led by Russia and a coalition of Muslim states, but nobody knows the timing of it. And I recently wrote a book called Nine Wars of the End Times, and I surveyed prophecy scholars across the nation and they were all across the board. Some thought it was going to be before the tribulation, some uh, at the beginning of the tribulation, some at the middle of the tribulation, some at the end of the tribulation. So there are things like that in Bible prophecy that nobody has the answer to. I have a whole list of things that, you know, it says we look through a mirror darkly and don't understand everything, but when we stand face to face with Jesus Christ, we will. So I've got a long list of questions that I want to ask Jesus when I stand face to face with him. My urologist told me the same thing when last time I was there. He's about the very devout Christian. And he said, you know, I got a long list of questions for Jesus. And the top of the list, number one, is why did you design the urethra so that it gets narrower and smaller as it goes down and makes it so difficult to pass kidney stones? <laughs> I said, well, I think that's part of the curse. <laughs> 
I think originally it wasn't that way, but that was part of the curse. Okay, well, you've started off with one of the most difficult and mysterious questions of Bible prophecy. Well, why will there be a temple? Yeah. And uh, why will uh, there be sacrifices? Well, there are different answers to that. Uh, first of all, you've got to understand that when Jesus returns to reign for a thousand years, he's going to have a Jewish kingdom. He has promised this to the Jewish people, that one day they will have a kingdom, and he will rule through them over all the nations of the world. So he will have a Jewish kingdom. It will be focused in Jerusalem, where he will be the King of kings and Lord of lords. The scripture says David, in his resurrected body, will serve as the king of Israel. Jesus will be king of kings. David will be king of Israel. We in our glorified bodies will be scattered all over the earth to reign over those in natural bodies. And some of you will be kings, some of you presidents, some of you school board members, some of you city council members and things like that. But every person in a position of authority during the millennium will be a person in a glorified body. And that's the reason that during the millennium, the earth is going to be flooded with peace, righteousness, and justice. Now, why a temple? Because, again, this will be a Jewish-focused uh, 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 kingdom, and they have always had a temple, and so the temple will, I think, be rebuilt. It's definitely, we told that in the book of Ezekiel, it will be rebuilt. It will be much larger than any temple that has ever existed before. In fact, it's so large it wouldn't even fit into the situation of the Temple Mount in Jerusalem today. But we're told that when Jesus returns, the whole topography of the earth will be changed. That at the second coming, the greatest earthquakes in history will occur. Every mountain will be lowered. Every plain will be lifted up. Every island will be moved. There'll be the earth, worldwide earthquakes, and the whole topography of the world will be changed when Jesus returns. And it also indicates that Jerusalem will be lifted up to be the highest place on planet Earth. And people will come to Jerusalem to uh, come up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Lord all through the millennial reign. As to the sacrifices, there are various uh, theories about this. We know that Jesus is the one and only sacrifice for our sins. But it could be that since this is a Jewish kingdom, that these are revived to remind the Jews of how important the sacrifice of Jesus was. I mean, you watch a bloody sacrifice, it is not a pleasant thing to watch. And it could be a reminder to them of the price that Jesus paid for their sins. It could very well be that for the Jewish people at least, sacrifices during that time would be like communion that we celebrate yeah. today yeah. by taking the bread and wine to remind us of the sacrifice that Jesus made on the cross. But they certainly will not be sacrifices that atone for the sins of mankind. Yeah, and that was the next question, what were reasons for sacrifice animals? And that, that's what, uh, in our men's Bible study, that's one of the conclusions that we yeah. came to, was that it was going to be like the communion that right. we take. Right, Okay. What would, uh, let's see, what, uh, okay. This says, what would, to those who believe it, well, those who believe it who got, what would, well, okay, to those who believe in Jesus who got left behind, if they, you know. In other words, I think what they're trying to say is, uh, I believe if anybody, you know, comes to Jesus, you know, the Bible says, uh, whosoever call on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you believe in Jesus, really, you're not going to be here. You're going to be gone. But there are going to be people, you know, Jesus said, you know, 
I never knew you, so there's going to be people that would be left behind, I guess, in that. Very definitely. In fact, I believe with all my heart that uh, the week after the rapture, many hundreds and thousands of churches will meet with the pastor in the pulpit. Because we have churches all across America today where pastors do not believe in the scriptures. They don't believe that this is the inspired word of God. They believe it's man's search for God and it's full of myth, legend, and superstitions. They mock the concept of the resurrection. And Paul says point blank in 1 Corinthians 15, if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus, you are not a Christian. You can call yourself one. You can wear clerical clothing. Uh, you can say prayers. and all, But you're not a Christian if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus. I remember years ago, that uh, the Dallas Morning News, this was probably in the 80s. I picked up the Dallas Morning News one morning and I was going through it and I came to a page, two pages dedicated, I couldn't believe it, these two pages were dedicated to reproducing the sermon that was produced at SMU, Southern Methodist University, at Easter for the students. And I thought, why would they do that? So I started reading it and I understood why. Because this man who was a professor of New Testament theology at Southern Methodist University said in this sermon, the concept of a resurrection of Jesus from the dead is pure nonsense. He said he was never resurrected from the dead. He said, let me tell you what the resurrection of Jesus was like. He said it was like what happened after the assassination of Martin Luther King. His friends sat around a table with a cup of coffee and talked to each other. And they said, do you remember when Martin said this? Do you remember when Martin said that? Do you remember when he said that? And as they talked about him, he became alive in their hearts. And that's all there is to the resurrection. The apostles just sat around and talked about him and remembered things he said, and he became alive in their hearts. That's a pretty sad situation to think that a professor of New Testament theology would be teaching that kind of nonsense. But we've got professors of New Testament theology all over this nation who teach that kind of nonsense. I remember I had a good friend named Leroy Garrett who was the first member of the Church of Christ to ever attend Harvard Theological Seminary. And he did so back in the 1940s. Now that's a long time ago. But even then, he was a freshman in the seminary and the professors came to him and said, we had a meeting of the professors yesterday, and we were trying to pick a speaker for Easter. And we decided we would ask you to be the speaker at Easter. He said, well, hey, I'm a freshman here. I'm just getting going. What, what do you mean? I'm scared to death to do that. He said, well, we selected you for one reason. You're the only person we know among the staff and among the faculty who believes in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And that was in the 1940s. You can imagine how bad it is today. In fact, today, Harvard University has as their campus chaplain an avowed atheist. The, the, the theme for Harvard when it was first founded was yeah. truth for Christ. Yeah. Now it just says truth. So, yeah. Uh, is, Babylon, is Babylon destroyed before the rapture? Well, this is uh, another area where uh, Bible uh, prophecy scholars are very sharply di disagree about. In fact, um, if you take the, the prophecy people like me who interpret prophecy for its plain sense meaning, who do not spiritualize it, say it means what it says, then you would find that they're divided down the middle on this. Half of them believe that in the end times, Babylon is going to be rebuilt 
and is going to be the kingdom, uh, the, the, the uh, capital of the Antichrist and will be destroyed. The other half vehemently deny that and say that Babylon will never be rebuilt because it says so in Scripture. It will never be rebuilt. It will always be a place of jackals and wolves and things like that. And uh, it, the other half say, no, Babylon is a code word for Rome. And in the book of Revelation, John uses Babylon, he refers to it as mystery Babylon, which was a tip-off to Christians at that time that he was not talking about Babylon. Because if he had been writing about, if he in his writings had written about Rome and all the things going to happen to Rome, he would have been killed on the spot because he was under Roman capture at the time. He was a captive of Rome on the island of Patmos. So he simply referred to it as mystery Babylon. He referred to the fact that it was a city on seven hills. It's very obvious he's talking about Rome. Furthermore, Peter in one of his epistles, first or second Peter, he ends it by saying, I think it was second Peter, he ends it by saying, I send greetings to you from Babylon, the church in Babylon. Peter was never in Babylon. At the time he wrote that, he was in Rome. But that was the term that first century Christians used to refer to Rome. They always referred to it as Babylon because they knew if they were caught talking about Rome in derisive terms, they would be killed. So I believe personally that the Babylon of, of the end times is going to be Rome. And I believe that uh, Rome will be destroyed by God in one day of one, one hour of one day, just as it says in the book of Revelation. And I believe that the Antichrist will have his headquarters there. And I believe that at the beginning of the tribulation, it says he is going to use the church to advance his kingdom. He will have an alliance with the with the head of a, a pagan church that will advance. And it says at the middle of the tribulation, after he has secured his rule over all the world, he will kill off the head of that church, and he will form a new church with the false prophet. I think the, that church at the beginning of the tribulation is going to be the Roman Catholic Church. It's a church that is very apostate. It's a church that, uh, uh, that has already, you may remember that Pope Paul called a conference Years ago, this was in the 80s, I believe it was, he called a conference of all the religious leaders of the world and asked them to come to Assisi, Italy. And when they arrived, he asked them to all celebrate their gods. Their gods. So they had Amer the one who stole the show was an American Indian chief who built a fire and did a dance around it and celebrated the cloud god. But they had, all, they had Buddhists there. They had... Uh, they had Mormons. They had all kinds of people celebrating whatever God they worship. In fact, the Dalai Lama was there. I guess he worshiped himself because he claims to be God. And since then, subsequent popes have continued to hold these meetings where they bring all the religious leaders of the world together and they celebrate their own gods as if there's more than one God. And so I think that with that kind of road, uh, uh, with that kind of record, He'll probably utilize the Roman Catholic Church to bring together the religions of the world into a, a, a conglomeration, and he will use that to bring worship to himself during the first half of the tribulation. Then when he's conquered the world, he'll do away with that, and he will set up a new religion headed up by the false prophet. It's like Baha. Yeah, Baha. Yeah, very much like Baha. Yeah. yeah. Uh, as as individuals and as a community of believers, can you give us examples 
of how we can stand in these dark times, example of how do you respond when a town holds an LGBTQ festival. Yeah. Well, I think the first thing you need to do is you need to pray to God that he will lay a particular issue on your heart. You can't oppose everything. I mean, it just, you, you've got to focus. So I would say what you need to do is pray, first of all, pray earnestly to the Lord over a period of time, lay an issue on my heart. He will do that. And then when he does that, focus on that issue. For example, he may lay on your heart the issue of abortion. If he does that, then ask him to specify. Ask him, Lord, what do you want me to focus on in abortion? There's so many ways to deal it. He may ask you to go out on the front lines and stand in the front of an abortuary and, and demonstrate against it, even be arrested. He may call you to do that. On the other hand, he may call you to adopt a, a, a baby that is going to be aborted, that you would adopt this baby so it would not be aborted. He may ask you to write letters to the editor and do that. He may ask you to run for office on a platform that you're opposed to abortion. There's many different ways he could ask you to stand for righteousness, but try to focus your, uh, your efforts so that they really have an impact instead of just kind of spreading them over many, many different issues. But God will do it. He'll, he'll give you an issue to stand on, and uh, you take an action on that. With regard to a pastor, though, you have to be more comprehensive in terms of this. And this is what Lee is trying to do here in this society, in this town, is to make a stand on various issues by going before the governing authorities and making a response as the pastor of this church. They don't like it when you show They don't up like it. <laughs> yeah, they don't pat him on the back and uh, say thank you. They just go ahead and vote the way they're going to vote in the first place. But you need to stand up for it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, okay. Ezekiel, this sort of has to deal with timeline. Is Ezekiel 38 war before the rapture? That's another uh, question I, I mentioned at the beginning. The Ezekiel 38 war is called the War of Gog and Magog in which Russia comes down against Israel with certain specified allies, all of whom today are Muslim countries. And the interesting thing is that not one ally is mentioned that has a common border with Israel. Not one. This is an outer circle of allies who come against Israel. That is the reason that a prophecy scholar uh, a few years ago in the 1980s came to the conclusion that, there is, that Psalm 83 is a war that's going to occur in the end times. Psalm 83 is a war between Israel and all of the nations that have a common border. So it includes Lebanon, it includes Jordan, it includes Syria, it includes Egypt and Gaza. The war that's going on now could develop into that. It hasn't so far. But it says that Israel will is going to win overwhelmingly in that war, and that could very well be the impetus when Israel conquers those nations for them to appeal to Russia to come to their aid. And the Russians would be delighted to come into the Middle East at the invitation of the Arabs because the Russians desire to control the Middle East and the oil fields of the Middle East. And it says that this Russians will come down with all these allies, that Rizal will have no hope of, of defeating them, and that when they come and land, it says they will land on the mountains of Israel, that's central Israel, it must be a, coming in through paratroopers or whatever. It says God will absolutely destroy the armies. He will destroy them with earthquakes, 
with hail, with brimstone, with confusion. They will be totally destroyed to the point that the Israelis will realize that they did not defeat them, that God did. And some of the Israelis will then begin to turn their hearts to God. Now, when that war will occur, again, nobody knows. Uh, they're all over the map. Some say it's going to be before. Some say, I'll tell you, that, put it this way. For many, many years, people who interpreted Bible prophecy literally said that war will occur at the beginning of the tribulation. Now, the reason they took that position is because it says the war will occur at a time when Israel is living in peace and safety without walled cities. And so they said, okay, when will that be? Well, that will be after the Antichrist makes a treaty with Israel at the beginning of the tribulation guaranteeing the peace of Israel. And he will guarantee their peace during the first five, uh, three and a half years of the tribulation until he goes to Jerusalem and declares himself God, at which point the Jews will turn against him and he will turn against them and try to kill them all. So they said it has to be at the beginning of the tribulation. But in recent years that thought has changed. In recent years, the majority of people who interpret Bible prophecy literally are now saying it couldn't be at the beginning of the tribulation because it says that at the end of that war, the Jews will spend seven years cleaning up the battlefield. Well, how can they do that? Because in the middle of the tribulation, they're going to be ejected from Israel. The Antichrist will come against them and he will force them out of Israel and they will flee to Jordan, possibly to the area called Petra, and they just simply won't be able to do it. So Ron Rhodes, who is uh, uh, one of the greatest writers on Bible prophecy, yes. wonderful writer, lives in Texas, good friend, he wrote a book called North Storm Rising, called, talking about Gog and Magog, the North Storm being the storm coming out of the north from, from Russia. And he argues in there that most likely the war of Gog and Magog will start at least three and a half years before the tribulation begins. And that would then give the Jews a full seven years, three and a half years before the tribulation, three and a half years into the tribulation before they're forced out of Israel. And they would have a full seven years to clean up the battlefield. And more and more people who are interpreting the Bible prophecy literally are taking that position now that probably Israel will defeat all of its enemies around it. And it would be during that time when it feels secure that the Russians will come with the Muslims in the war of Gog and Magog. So again, we don't know for sure. So you're saying there's going to be a gap, a gap between the time of the rapture. Oh yeah, absolutely. There will be a gap between the between that and the. And but, the yeah, the rapture the is not the thing that starts the tribulation. There will be a gap between the rapture and the time of the tribulation. Uh, the tribulation begins when the Antichrist signs a peace treaty with Israel. That's when it begins, according to Daniel chapter nine. So there's got to be a gap, a gap of at least two to three years, something of that nature between the, uh, the rapture and the beginning of the tribulation because there has to be a time period during which the Antichrist rises to power. He has to rise to power in Europe and uh, he has to take over uh, Europe and uh, he has to get organized to take over the world. He has to form a military group to take over the world and then he will sign this treaty with Israel and then he will launch a war to take over the world. The Antichrist is not just going to announce the world, you know, I've got all the answers to the world and the world comes and worships him. No. 
this idea that the Antichrist will be so charismatic and so dynamic that everybody in the world will just bow down and worship him and say, oh, we, we honor you, come and rule over us. No. <laughs> Africa, Asia, and Latin America have not spent 200 years trying to get rid of colonialism to turn around and say to a European leader, come rule us. They're not going to do it. He's going to have to conquer the world. And I think that's what the seal judgments are all about. He launches a world war to conquer the world. And uh, that means he's going to have to go. In fact, I think that's going to be when he will deal with the Muslims. Because the last people in the world who are going to worship any kind of European leader are going to be the Muslims. So I think God will work through the Antichrist to deal with Islam. And during the seal judgments, which is a war, I believe, a conventional war, it'll be World War III, I think he will deal with the Muslim nations and he will conquer the world during World War III, except that the problem is that that war is going to become so intense that it's going to make a transition. And if you'll read the transition that between the seal judgments and the trumpet judgments, what I believe happens is that the conventional war of World War II makes a transition into a nuclear war. Because if you look at the trumpet judgment, suddenly it starts talking about one-third of the earth is burned up. It talks about one-third of the earth burned up. Well, I, I think what's happening is that the World War III makes a transition into the use of nuclear weapons, and there's an all-out exchange of nuclear weapons, and the world is literally a third of it is burned up through these nuclear weapons. It's probably the reason that it says at the end of the book of Revelation that people have sores all over them that cannot be healed. And that would be the result of radiation. Because if there's all-out nuclear exchange, there will be so much radiation taken up into the atmosphere that it will be irradiated around the world. Crops will be radiated, animals radiated, human beings radiated. So that by the end of the tribulation, three and a half years later, you're going to have people with sores that cannot be healed. It's going to be a horrible, horrible time. So uh, again, Gog and Magog, we don't know for sure. Yeah. Uh, current events in Israel, uh, as rel our current events in Israel, how does that relate? That's going on right now. Does that is there a prophecy? Well, we don't know for sure how it relates. We have to wait and see. If other nations with a common border with Israel get involved, we know it's the War of Psalm 83. But not all end-time wars are in Bible prophecy, so we just don't know for sure. But uh, I tell you, I am absolutely appalled at the outbreak of anti-Semitism that has occurred here in the United States. It's just absolutely appalling. And uh, I watch these crowds. Uh, they, they have been, you know, when they first came out, they all had handmade signs. Did you notice the transition that occurred within a week's time? They suddenly had beautifully printed signs, beautifully printed banners, because Hamas is putting millions of dollars into these protesters. And providing them with money, with signs, with transportation, everything. And it's just amazing what's going on. Watch the interviews of the people involved in these protests. They go out, they interview them and say, what are you, what are you protesting against? Well, I don't know. Uh, I, my friend invited me to come to this protest. Okay. Well, I noticed you were chanting free Palestine from the river to the sea. Yeah, yeah, that, they told us to chant that. Okay. What is the river? Well, I don't know. The river. Well, what is it? Well, I don't know. What is the sea? Well, Atlantic Ocean? No. 
What is it? They don't even know what they're chanting. It's from the River Jordan to the Mediterranean Sea. And they'd say to them, what does that now mean? Well, I don't know. I'm kind of weak on geography. It's talking about Israel. It's saying annihilate the state of Israel. Well, I, won't, I don't believe in that. Well, that's what you're doing. So I, I, as I've watched these interviews, I've decided that we've got at least three or four different groups out there. One are the naive who know nothing about geography, nothing about the Middle East, nothing about Israel, nothing about Hamas. In fact, I've seen them ask, what do you think about Hamas? Well, what is Hamas? I don't know who Hamas is. These are naive people, and they have been suckered into these protests by people telling them, well, Israel's an evil state, Israel's a apartheid state, Israel's this, and so forth and so on. Then there are the ones who have been brainwashed by liberal professors and Marxist professors at, pub at public universities. And then there are the ones who are Arabs. I mean, you look at these and you can see the Arabs all over the place. I mean, they've got the headdresses on and the scarves on and all this sort of thing. And of course, they're involved and they've been brainwashed since they were born. So you've got all kinds of groups that are involved in this, but a lot of it is just based upon misinformation and lies about Israel. Uh, to chant free Palestine from the river to the sea is a horrible thing. It's talking about the annihilation of Israel. And then they, they, they quote things like, free, free Gaza, free Gaza, free Gaza. Gaza was freed in 2005. In 2005, the Israelis pulled all of their people out of Gaza. There were 9,000 Jews living in Gaza who had lived there over 30 years. They had large factories. They had farms. Uh, they were producing most of the flowers that Israel produces. They were producing most of the herbs, all this sort of thing. They turned all that over to the Palestinians. They had, the military had to go in and drag these people out because they'd lived there for 30 years. They had to blow up their synagogues because they knew that when they left, the Muslims would desecrate their synagogue. They had to dig up the graves of their people because they knew that the graves would be desecrated and move their dead bodies to Israel. All of this had to be done, but Israel did that in 2005 and gave Gaza to the Muslims and said, take it and develop it and be happy. And yet they're saying free Gaza. And people think Gaza's under some sort of occupation. It's not. And let me tell you something else. When Gaza was freed, millions, hundreds of millions of dollars began to flow into Gaza from nations all over the world, including the United States, to build hospitals, to build schools, to build infrastructure, highways, and this sort of thing. And that hundreds of millions of dollars did not go to the people of Gaza. It went, when Hamas took over Gaza, they took that money and began to buy military supplies with it, and they began to build 300 miles of concrete tunnels that go into Israel. And the other thing they did with the money is that all the leaders of Hamas, all of them, moved to, uh, to Qatar, Qatar is one of the uh, fabulous uh, uh, Arab immigrant states that's very, very rich. And they all move there. They don't live in, in Gaza. They live in Qatar. It's estimated that the four leaders of Hamas are worth $11 billion. They have their private jets. They have their mansions. They all live in Qatar. They don't live with their people in Gaza. And, and so that's where the money has gone. But to say free Gaza... The only way that that is meaningful is to free Gaza of Hamas because Hamas is persecuting the Palestinian people, not yeah. Israel. Yeah. So uh, these slogans that they're using are just 
incredible. Uh, they talk about one of the slogans is 75 years of occupation. I've heard that over and over and over. That Israel's 75 years old, and they're saying Israel has been occupying Palestinian land for 75 years. That's total nonsense. First of all, Israel has a biblical right to that land. That land was given to Israel in Genesis chapter 12 by God to Abraham. And if you will note, it was that promise was repeated 14 times in the book of Genesis. This land has been given to you forever, forevermore. Psalm 105 reaffirms it. David reaffirms it. It's given to you forever. That's, they occupied the land 3,500 years ago. And they were there for 1,500 years before they were forcibly uh, removed from the land. But even when they were removed from the land, there was never a Palestinian state. There has never been a Palestinian state in history. There's no Palestinian, never been a Palestinian government. There have been a Palestinian re religion. There have been a Palestinian uh, uh, language. Palestine was simply a province of the Ottoman Empire. The Turkish Empire controlled all the Middle East. And so they were a part of that, like Kentucky is a part of the United States. They were never a sovereign, independent state. And furthermore, there was almost no one who lived there. there it was a desolate. The Bible says, point blank, when the Jews leave the land, God will make it a desolation. And he did that on purpose so that nobody would want it. And he preserved it for the Jewish people. You remember, uh, uh, what, what was his name? I, uh, Mark Twain, yeah. yeah, Mark Twain in 1866 went over there. He says the most barren land he ever saw in his life. He said he traveled all the way from Tiberias on the Sea of Galilee to Jerusalem. Took him three to four days by horseback. Never saw a tree, never saw a human being. It was just a totally desert land. They chopped down every tree in Israel. There were no trees left by the time the 20th century began. The Israelis planted 250 million trees during the 20th century. But the land was just devastated. There were very few people who lived there. And all the people who lived there considered themselves Syrians. And all the land was owned by Syrian absentee landlords. There was never a Palestinian state. They tried to teach you that the Israelis came in there and stole all this land from, from the, uh, they didn't do that. What they began to do in the early 1900s is come back into the land and buy it. They bought the land, and the Syrians who owned it laughed at them. Who would want this barren land? And they charged them ten times what it was worth and laughed all the way to the bank. So the Israelis have it by biblical authority, and they also have it legally. Legally. You know why, they're, why they have an Israeli state? Because in 1947, the United Nations voted that they would divide that land between the Israels, Israelis and the Arabs. And they agreed that they could set up two independent states. The Israelis didn't like that. It left them with almost no land at all, but they accepted it. And on May the 14th, 1948, they declared the existence of Israel. On that same day, that very same day, the Palestinians could have met in East Jerusalem and declared the existence of a Palestinian state. But they did said, no, we want it all. And so instead of doing that, they attacked Israel. The Palestinians on five different occasions have been offered the opportunity to create a Palestinian state. And every time they've turned it down because they don't want a Palestinian state. What they want is the annihilation of Israel. And that's the reason that Bibi Netanyahu has always said, 
Folks, you can sum up the situation in the Middle East very simply this way. If the Arabs were disarmed, we would have peace. If Israel were to disarm, Israel would cease to exist. Israel is not the aggressor. Israel is there by biblical authority. They're there by legal authority. And incidentally, at the end of World War II, you may not know this, but during World War I, at the end of World War I, during World War I, the Turks who controlled the Ottoman Empire sided with the Germans. So when the Germans lost, the Turks lost. And the Allies divided up the Ottoman Empire between Britain and France. And Britain was given that area called Palestine. And then the moment they got it, they issued the Balfour Declaration that said, we're going to dedicate this land to the creation of a Jewish state. And Jews all over the world began to celebrate. But a few years later, in 1921, Winston Churchill, who was the foreign secretary of the British government, decided that they needed to curry favor with the Arabs. So he simply announced that he was giving two-thirds of Palestine to the Arabs. There is already a Palestinian state. It's called Jordan. Jordan is a Palestinian state. One half of all the people who live in Jordan are Palestinians. So they already have a Palestinian state. He gave two-thirds to them what was published, promised to the, uh, to the uh, Jews. The Jews felt like they had been stabbed in the back. They felt like they had been betrayed. They were left with a tiny sliver of land. You know how small Israel is? Israel is only 270 miles long. Its width varies from 9 miles to 85 miles, its greatest width. You could drive across Israel in a few minutes. It's just a tiny little thing. And then after they were left with that sliver of land, the United Nations decided we're going to divide that sliver of land between Israel and the Arabs. Israel accepted, the Arabs rejected. Five times Israel has said to them, we will give you the West Bank, we will give you Gaza, we will allow you to establish a state. And they've said no, because, you know, Arafat went to Washington, D.C. in 2000. And under the supervision of Clinton, he negotiated with the most liberal prime minister in the history of Israel, Ehud Barak. Barak said, I will give you Gaza. I will give you 94% of the West Bank. You can establish your state right now. And Clinton said the only thing Arafat said during the week that he was there was no, no, no. He never accepted a thing. Because he knew if he did, if he accepted that, that he would be killed. Because the people of Palestine don't want a second state. They want the annihilation of Israel. And you know, one of the other things is, is when they continually talk about uh, the Palestinians being oppressed. Well, they're oppressed, but not by Israel. That's right. They're oppressed by all their, the Arabs, the, the Egyptians, yeah. and all the other people that are around. That's oh. why they won't, they won't take them. Incidentally, one of the slogans that just drives me up the wall and, and really attracts a lot of supporters is the slogan, end apartheid in Israel. You'll see that everywhere, end apartheid in Israel. Now, that really attracts a lot of people because people hate the idea of apartheid. Apartheid is a South African uh, a, a word comes from the Boer language of the whites in South Africa, apartheid. It means absolute separation of the races. And Af South Africa had that, the absolute separation. Blacks could live here, whites could live there, blacks could ride on this kind of bus, whites rode on that kind of bus. Everything was separated. There is no apartheid whatsoever in the nation of Israel, none. Israel has two million Palestinians living within its borders. Every one of them are citizens of Israel. 
They have every freedom that the Israelis have. They have the freedom to vote. They, have, they serve in the Knesset. They serve on the Supreme Court. They have all the welfare benefits that the Israelis have. They ride any transportation they please. They go to any hospital they please. There is no apartheid in Israel. It is an absolute, total lie. In fact, the Palestinians of Israel have a freedom that the Jews don't have. And that freedom is this. Every Jew is required to serve in the military. Men for three years, women for two years. The Palestinians are not required to serve in the Israeli military. They can if they want to. They're not put in combat positions. They're put in support positions. But they have the freedom not to serve. Israelis don't have that freedom. So they have a freedom in the Israelis don't have. So to say that Israel is an apartheid state is ridiculous. Two million Palestinians live within it. And there is not one Arab state in the world that will allow one Jew to live in it. So the people who practice apartheid are the Arabs who accuse Israel of being an apartheid nation. Satan knows how to use lies. Yeah. This, this deals with a different subject here. It's the best, uh, best believer's response to close, what's the best believer's response to close family members who choose homosexuality, lifestyle, marriage, and when those people continue to walk as believers? Well, I think you should love them. I think you should uh, not get rid of them like a Jehovah's Witness who converts and the family declares them dead and won't have anything to do with them. You should continue to love them. You should continue to pray for them earnestly. The one thing you should not do is to endorse their lifestyle. Don't endorse it. One of the problems we have today is tolerance has changed. When I was growing up, tolerance meant that you put up with people that you disagreed with. That's not the definition of tolerance today. You are not tolerant today unless you endorse homosexuality. It's not just to put up with it, you have to endorse it. You have to endorse pedophilia, you have to endorse all these things that are an abomination to God if, or for you to be tolerant. Otherwise, you are an intolerant person. So I would say that you, you continue to express to them your love for them, you continue to pray for them earnestly that God will move on their hearts and deliver them from this deception that they're caught up in but you don't do anything to endorse what they're doing and to say it's okay. So it's a, it's a delicate relationship. And I think the church needs to be uh, very cautious too. Uh, one of the foremost evangelical leaders of America has decided, well, we're just going to endorse. It, not only does he welcome homosexuals, practicing homosexuals, but he has started appointing them to positions in the church. Well, that is an abomination. That's an absolute abomination. There are homosexuals I know who have said, I realize this is an abomination to God. I have this attraction, but I'm not going to give in to it, and I'm going to ask the Lord to give me the power through the Holy Spirit to be a person who is uh, sanctified by the Spirit and who lives a godly life by not giving in to this. When homosexuals say, well, I was born that way, let me tell you, every one of us is born with a sin nature. Every one of us. There are people who are natural born thieves. There are people who are natural-born adulterers. There are people who are natural-born uh, criminals. But that doesn't mean you give in to it. It doesn't mean that it's okay. It means that you fight against that evil nature that, that, that you have, and you do so. The only way you can really conquer it is through the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit 
and relying on that. And the other thing, guys, we've got to realize, and I, and I believe this, is what our weapons are. We don't use our weapons. Yeah. What's our weapon? The Bible tells us we're mighty through God, able to pull down strongholds. You gotta, you gotta really get on your knees and tell the Lord. I mean, you gotta turn it over to Him. And I think so many times we, you know, we do a little piddle in prayer, and 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 that's, you know, that's not the answer. I mean, really do some warfare, you and the Lord alone, and really getting with Him and praying with Him until you know, yeah. until you know that He's heard you. We have this problem in our family right now. My wife has a granddaughter who has announced that she is a lesbian, and uh, she has announced that she is getting married. And uh, we have been invited to the wedding, and we have written her a letter in which we've told her that we love her and that we pray for her all the time, but that we cannot attend the wedding because to attend the wedding, we would be giving our approval to what's going on. And uh, so we, we're dealing with this problem right now. It's that balance. You know, balance is what? Two things we got. We got to love people, but we got to stand on the word. Yeah. And there's some people not going to like it. Okay, will the seven feasts of the, uh, of Israel, the seven feasts of the Lord be celebrated during the millennial reign? Yeah, I think they probably will, at least in Israel. Mm -hmm. They probably will. And those seven feasts of Israel which occur over a period of seven months. Uh, I think those, those feasts are all prophetic in nature. Uh, you have the feast of Passover, which was fulfilled in the life of Jesus as our Passover lamb. You have the feast of first fruits that follows that, that uh, on the Sunday following it, and that was Jesus' resurrection from the dead. He's called the first fruits of the resurrection in 1 Corinthians 15, so he fulfilled that feast. Then you have a feast 50 days later, the Feast of Pentecost or the Feast of Harvest, and Jesus fulfilled that because on that day the church was established. And then you have a period, a gap during the summer, and your feasts do not pick up again until the fall in September or October. And the first one is the uh, Feast of, of the New Year, uh, the Feast of Trumpets. And that tr feast has not been fulfilled in the life of Jesus or in the history of the church. There's three left, the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Yom Kippur, and the Feast of, of Tabernacles, which occur very rapidly uh, one after another in the fall of the year. Uh, some people believe that the Feast of Trumpets will most likely be fulfilled with the rapture of the church. It could be. I don't know. Uh, we know that the rapture is going to be signaled by a great blowing of a trumpet. And then the Feast of Yom, Pur, uh, Yom uh, Kippur would be fulfilled with the uh, salvation of the Jewish remnant at the end of the tribulation. And then the Feast of Tabernacles would be fulfilled when Jesus comes back to tabernacle with us during the millennial reign. Okay. Um, we only, we've got a few more minutes. Our world today has suddenly changed with Muslim, I think there's illegals, dominating every country. How does this fit in with the end of times? Well, it fits in with it in the sense that the Bible says that in the end times there's going to be widespread apostasy and heresy. You know, the Bible does not have one positive thing, not one positive thing to say about the church in the end times. I, everywhere I go today, I keep hearing about this great revival that's going to occur. Let me, you can't find that in the Bible. The Bible says everything it says about the church in the end times is negative. It'll be full of apostasy, heresy, people with wanting to have their ears tinkled and wanting prophets to say what they want to hear said, 
that the church will be co compromised by the world, and that's what we're seeing. We're seeing the gross apostasy moving through the church today. One of the most apostate doctrines being taught in the church today that's spreading like wildfire is that there are many different roads to God. Who are we to say that Jesus is the only way? Most of your major denominations have accepted it. The Catholic Church has accepted this formally, that there are many different roads to God. And the Bible, it, it, it makes it just as clear as it can be. There's only one road, that's Jesus Christ. 14, but 6. people say, well, we don't want to be intolerant, and we want to be accepting, and we want to be loving, and so who are we to say that there's only one way? We don't say that. Jesus said it, and he was the Son of God. So that's the reason I wrote this book, book on Islam called, Are There Two Different Roads to God? And they're not. Uh, but when I researched that book, I found out something very interesting that I didn't know, and I haven't found out anybody who knew this. That when the Second Vatican Council occurred, Pope Paul demanded that the Catholic Church pass a resolution saying that Muslims were saved. Nobody knew that. And then in 1992, when the Catholic Catechism was revised for the first time in a hundred years, they put a new portion in there, and it says point blank, Muslims worship the same God as we do, and therefore they are, uh, have salvation. That's just as abomination. Yahweh is not Allah. Amen. But they say, you know, they, are, they say, well, the Muslims believe in one God, we believe in one God, so we must believe in the same God. No, we don't. Allah is not Yahweh. Okay, uh, this a little bit different. Recently, there has been discussion and hearings in Washington, D.C. about extraterrestrial beings. Some Christian scholars have claimed this could be Nephilims. What is your opinion about this? Well, that gets into a lot of sensationalism that I don't like to get into, but the person you're going to have next year, Billy Crone, has done a lot of research on that, and so he'd be the one to ask. But what Billy takes, the position he takes, is that uh, these are demonic in nature, yeah. that uh, it's, it's a manifestation of demonic spirits, and probably increasing because when the rapture occurs, then... By the increase in this, people will say, oh, well, this was people taken out uh, by demons or taken out, you know, by aliens or whatever, but they won't admit that it was something that God did. Yeah. So, who, who, I, I don't know. I, it's I, like, uh, t what's a Tom Cruise? What's the thing? Yes. Huh? Yeah, so I'm interested to see when the rapture takes place and they're left behind, I wonder how they're going to explain that. The mothership didn't come get them, I guess. Well, there'll be a lot of explanations, yeah. a lot of explanations. In fact, the New Age movement back in the 1970s, the leaders of the New Age movement called a press conference and said, the masters of the universe have been talking to us. Those are <laughs> demons they're talking about. They said, the masters of the universe have been talking to us, and they've revealed a new thing to us, that a day is coming when all those who live by faith will be taken out of this world so that those who live by reason can continue in their evolutionary development toward perfection. But we can't move in that direction and reach that perfection as long as those who live by faith are in the world standing in our way. So they're going to be taken out. And when, when the rapture occurs, you just watch. The leaders of the New Age movement will go to the microphone and say, said, we told you back in 1970 this was going to happen. And this is exactly what happened. They were taken out, not by God or anything like that. They were just taken out so that we can move on in our evolutionary development. Uh, what role do you think AI will uh, play in the end times? Well, 
Who knows? <laughs> it always reminds me of the movie 2000, was it 2001 or something like that, where the guys are on the spaceship, and they've got Hal the computer running the spaceship, and he has this deep, soft voice. He says, good morning, boys. How are you? <laughs> and everything is hunky-dory till they get way out in space, and then Hal says, boys, I have an announcement for you. During the night, I took over the spaceship, and now I'm in charge of it. <laughs> so who knows? I know that the people who really know AI are really scared of it and what it may happen. Can, can you guys put up there John 9:31? It says, what is the meaning of John 9:31? Can you put that scripture up there? Got it? All right, here we go. Now we know that God does not hear sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, he hears him. Well, I think it's pretty self explanatory. Yeah, it is. And what is, you know, uh, one of the things you read First John, and First John tells you it talks about um, what His will is, and what is His will? His will is that we come to know Christ as as our Lord and as our Savior. You know, so okay. I don't know. Okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go on here. You have to turn to God as in repentance. Yeah, He'll hear you. Yeah. Uh, let's see here. Uh, Revelation 7, the angels sealed the uh, uh, bond servants from the 12 tribes. Uh, where does the scripture indicate that these 144,000 will be evangelists? It is mentioned in chapter... Okay, five, yeah. Six. Well, that is an assumption. Uh, it, the, the point is that Revelation 7 begins by talking about these evangelists being sealed by the Holy Spirit and this 144,000 Jews named by, by their different tribes. And then immediately following that, it talks about the great number of people who are saved, so great that they can't be counted from all the nations of the world. So the assumption is that these people will be used as evangelists by God during that period of time. I had used to, one of my best friends used to be uh, Zola Levitt, who's gone on to be with the Lord. Zola Levitt was the best known Messianic Jew in the nation. He had a national TV program and all that sort of thing. And uh, so one day uh, I, I called Zola and I said, uh, Zola, do you believe that these 144,000 Jews mentioned in Revelation 7 are really going to be evangelists throughout the world? He said, well, of course they're going to be. Why do you think God's given us the kind of personality we have? <laughs> Well, I wasn't going to touch that with a 10-foot pole, so I acted dumb. I said, well, what do you mean? He said, well, don't you know any Jews? I said, yes. Well, haven't you ever noticed that we're kind of obnoxious, that we're very aggressive? I said, well, yeah, I have noticed that. He said, let me tell you something. When 144,000 of us are anointed by the Holy Spirit, we're going to go out and we're going to, co we're going to convert more people than you Gentiles have done in 2,000 years. We're going to push them up in the corner and hold them by the throat till they say, Jesus. I said, well, okay, praise the Lord. Hope you do it. 
All right, we're, we're almost out. I'm trying to get to every one of these. The first horseman uh, in, in Revelation 6, the first horseman has a bow, and some people think, which I, I do too, think it's significant that no arrows are mentioned in the, uh, in the quiver he has, but are the arrows understood to be without, uh, or, but are the arrows understood to be there without saying? I've always, what I've studied, that, that there's no arrows because when the, the writer or the Antichrist, he comes, he's going to say, peace, peace, and sudden destruction comes. So he's going to come saying. Absolutely. And the, the he's going to come there. as a person who's got all the solutions to the problems of the world and a man of peace who's going to bring peace and you know, all this sort of thing. And then once he's in power, all hell breaks loose. Yeah. Would the, uh, would the, Oh, gosh, man, I'm trying to read this. A lasting, um, okay, uh, used in the Abraham Covenant, the everlasting used in the Abraham Covenant be the same as, uh, as in John 3.16. I don't understand that. Who, I don't know. Did you write, write this? Okay, what are you asking, sir? Sorry. Okay. Well, uh, um, okay. Will Damascus be destroyed before or after the rapture? Don't know, but it's going to be destroyed. It says two times, yeah. completely destroyed. So I assume that uh, the Israelis are going to use atomic weapons on it sooner, sooner or later. This person that says, when dealing with a matter, I think this is right, issue, uh, matter, uh, major issue, the best way to deal with it is like eating an elephant one, uh, one bite at a time. Uh, with issues we are facing today, what do you see as the small bites we need to address first and foremost? Salvation. You know, one of the things that I really believe when we look at homosexuality and all the other things that are facing us, the very reason that we're having this now is we've not taken a stand like we should. And the, you think about it, the first thing that God did was not the church. It was the home. We've not stood the way we should in our home. And we've done some things that's created things that has allowed us to get involved in stuff that God, that God thinks is wrong and sin. And so the sexual revolution is a result. It's a result of legal issues that the, our government has passed. It's, it's sexual revolution is because that we have not stood like we should uh, in our homes. The church uh, began to be destroyed in the late 1800s by German higher criticism. The development of German higher criticism, the fundamental 
thing they taught was this is not the Word of God. This is man's search for God, and therefore it's full of myth, legend, and superstition. That came across the channel and hit England like an atomic bomb. And the leaders of the Anglican Church in England adopted it hook, line, and sinker and began to train the Anglican priests to believe that. The result was the destruction of Christianity in England. Just think, in 1850, England was the center of Christianity for the whole world. They were sending out missionaries all over the world. Their priests were writing the hymns. Many of the hymns in your book are written by Anglican priests in the 1850s. And today, England is spiritually dead. Only seven, well, less than that, only 5% of the British people go to church on Sunday. It's just a pagan nation. And it was destroyed by that, by Anglican priests getting up and saying, well, now the Bible says so-and-so about homosexuality, but you know this is not God's Word, really. It's just the opinion of a person. So today we know from modern psychology that it's okay. And people stop going. Why go? And that is exactly what has happened in this nation. It began in this nation. It spread to us in the 1920s. It spread to us. And today in the majority of all seminaries in America, the vast majority, they teach this is not the Word of God. This is man's search for God, full of myth, legend, and superstition. And people have stopped teaching with authority and preaching with authority, and churches have gone dead. Well, okay, we're going to have to stop there and give him a break a little bit. So okay. we appreciate you being here.